So I want to revisit a topic that I spoke on originally, I think like five years ago or so. But with all I've been through uh, personally over this past year, some of these concepts has really taken on new meaning. So I kind of wanted to dive into that again. That's just this idea of romance. Whoops. That's this idea of romance. So romantic tension is a, an essential plot device found most in any film, whether it is a romantic comedy, a thriller, or action adventure. Think about perhaps the classic romance, I would say, Rick and Ilza in Casablanca. So, so romance, this idea of romance, it's integral to the, to the films we watch because Hollywood knows it, it sells tickets, even since the 1940s. And we want romance portrayed on the silver screen just like we want it in real life. It's part of how we are wired. We long to pursue someone we admire or crave to have an admire woo us. We yearn to go beyond ourselves and share something special with someone we are attracted to. This, concept of romance is usually reserved to describe a passionate relationship between people. And, but it's quickly left behind as we walk through the doors of our churches. In fact, here or anywhere else, we don't usually hear a sermon that uses words like ravishing or untamed when describing God's interaction with the people he created. Instead, God is someone to be revered, honored, and obeyed. He's our savior, shelter, and strength. Now, when we looked at the uh, opening video this morning, U2's uh, Wild Honey, the song there, they speak to this idea of God as protector uh, in their, uh, the opening chorus here, where it says, from the cruel sun, you were the shelter, you are my shelter and my shade. 
These descriptions mirror Isaiah 25, 4, uh, when Isaiah says, you, you have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy and their distress, a shelter for the storm, and a shade from the heat. Now, these descriptions are absolutely true, but I would suggest that they're insufficient by themselves. In fact, when we view God only as our holy, powerful protector, our relationship with him can quickly become obligatory and transactional, much like a medieval serf paying homage to the powerful but benevolent uh, landowner king. I will do something for him, and then in turn, I hope he will do something for me. John Eldridge describes how this twisted view can impact our lives. He says, our faith ends up feeling more like a series of problems that need to be solved or principles that had to be mastered before we can finally enter into the abundant life promised us by Christ. He continues, and he says, the Christian life is a love affair of the heart. It cannot be lived primarily as a set of principles or ethics. It cannot be managed with steps and programs. It cannot be lived exclusively as a moral code leading to righteousness. The truth of the gospel is intended to free us to love God and love others with our whole heart. When we ignore this heart aspect of our faith and try to live out our faith solely as correct doctrine or ethics, our passion is crippled or perverted, and the divorce of our soul from the heart purpose of heart purposes of God toward us is deepened. When our view of God as purely an authority figure, when we view him that way, we can end up dumbing down the nature of his love for us. At best, his love becomes much like a grandfather's affection for his grandchild, sincere, warm, and protective, but that's typically not what you would describe as, as intimate. Intimacy, that's stuff behind the bedroom door. God's love is all about devotion, honor, respect, trust, and obedience. Julian of Norwich tells how this perspective can skew our understanding of God's love as we think like that. Some of us believe, and she said, some of us believe that God is almighty and may do everything, and that he is all wisdom and can do everything, but that he is all love and wishes to do everything. There, we stop short. It is this ignorance, it seems to me, that hinders most of God's lovers. In their song, Wild Honey, you 2 seems to describe this wilder sort of relationship. They sing of a God who desires us uh, and wants to do the kinds of things that lovers do. Play, hang out, simply be together. And the first verse goes like this. In the days when we were swinging from the trees, I was a monkey stealing honey from a swarm of bees. I could taste, I could taste you even then, and I would chase you down the wind. Spoken from God's point of view, this verse depicts a world uh, in a time before the fall of Adam and Eve, a time in which God could be playful and wild with his creation without any encumber encumbrances between them. And if you look at Genesis 2 and 3, there's a clear inference of that, that closer relationship like that, walking uh, in the garden, that, course, that sort of thing. And this sort of wild playfulness comes across in other works too. I think of uh, Chronicles of Narnia, where C.S. Lewis depicts Jesus Christ as a lion named Aslan. Aslan shows the, the same untamed affection to his faithful as U2 sings about in Wild Honey. Uh, after Aslan is resurrected in the, in the first book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, he says before playfully running off, I feel my strength coming back to me, O children, catch me if you can. 
And the main character, Lucy, can never decide whether she's playing with, when she's playing with Aslan in this manner is more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten. In Prince Caspian, Aslan invites the children to get on his back and go for a lively romp. And then finally, in the last battle, the last of the series, he's running alongside the heroes of the story as they race together further up, further in, in New Narnia. And uh, author Walter Bruggeman echoes the same perspective. He says, we live our lives before the wild, dangerous, unfettered, and free character of the living God. So Bruggerman, C.S. Lewis, and Bono are pointing to this kind of wild, wilder side of God that we rarely think about and understand even less. John Eldridge refers to the love that comes from this wild part of God as the sacred romance between God and his people. Now, romance may seem like a poor word choice when speaking about our relationship with God. In fact, I was talking with someone recently about this, and his reaction to it was that um, romance was unneeded and inappropriate, was, was the reaction. And so it didn't resonate at all in, in, you know, from his perspective. And I guess I would say, if you're struggling with this word, my suggestion is to think about it more broadly than just in terms of the way we often use it today. And at the end, if you dislike that term, maybe substitute deep love or passion to get what I'm trying to go after today. But at the same time, I would, I would suggest to hear me out first on this. Uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote, romance is the deepest thing in life. Romance is deeper even than reality. So what Chesterton is at here is clearly talking about something far deeper than just a physical or sexual attraction. Instead, it is a intimate, passionate desire for something beyond ourselves. It, and this inner heart yearning within us, a longing for transcendence, to be part of something good out of the ordinary, and this desire for deep communion, deeper intimacy. Most of you know that, uh, that last year, I found out that I have a, a serious form of cancer. And in those initial uh, terrorizing moments of discovery in the hospital that day, and then throughout the months that followed with the with the uh, chemical or the pain, painful uh, chemo uh, treatments, I really felt God at my side that that time. In fact, just a few weeks back, uh, I was I talked in church. Dave and I did this kind of interview back and forth, in which I talked about how intimate I felt with God at that time. But I was I was prepping for this sermon this week, I kind of, I realized that I felt like I did a, a really poor job of kind of articulating what I experienced. And so that's why I think I was really struck by diving back into the subject this week, because this, that term sacred romance really kind of gets to the root of what I experienced. I experienced a deep communion, a, a deep intimacy, this heart yearning, a longing that was met by God pursuing me wooing me and coming alongside of me during that midst when I was heartbroken. And to me, when I start to think about terms like God's love or, or God's presence to describe what I experienced, it seems to like tame everything, to kind of minimize what I experienced. Uh, to me, they're inadequate anyway. And that's where, uh, you know, when push comes to shove, when the rubber meets the road, that God's love is deeper than that. It's more intimate. It's more passionate. And from my perspective, it is truly a, a sacred romance. But I think this, this idea of the sacred romance is foreign in most churches today. There is this, you know, we kind of have a distrust of emotion. 
of the heart of longing that it can sound too touchy-feely for us or and then we can end up stomping this out this haunting that we might have in our hearts for with our rationalism didactic teaching and logical approach to scripture john eldridge uh, warns us of, of the pitfalls of this approach when he says this sacred romance is the core of our spiritual journey any religion that ignores it survives only as a guilt-induced legalism, a set of proposition to be mem prop excuse me, a set of propositions to be memorized and rules to be obeyed. God is a lover at heart, says Eldridge. And that's where Jars of Clay, the, the hymn that we or the, the song named hymn that we played right before the sermon, uh, kind of drives us home in the uh, in the first verse when it says, O refuge of my heart and heart. O fast-pursuing lover, come, as angels dance around your throne, my life, by captured fare you own. C.S. Lewis speaks to this point in his book, The Four Loves, when he says, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. Think about what Lewis is, kind of the impact of what Lewis is saying here. God specifically created us to be his lovers. In that light, part of the Bible begins to read surprisingly like a, like a love letter. In Isaiah 62, 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over, rejoice over you. And then a few verses later, you will be called sought after. Even more significantly is something Jesus uh, says in the passage that we read together in the New Testament reading, in John, John 14, 20, on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So Jesus is telling his disciples that he and his Father were one because the Father was in him. And then he invites us, them, the disciples, but by inclusion us as well, into that same relationship, that you will be in me and I will be in you. I like the way uh, Wayne Jacobson says in his book, He Loves Me, when he's talking about that, he says, in these simple words, Jesus revealed what God's desire had been from the first day of creation, to invite men and women to the relationship that God has known for himself, with himself for all eternity. It is, this, it is as if they could not keep to themselves the joy, love, glory, and trust that they had always shared together. Their purpose in creating the world was to invite us as mere creations to share the wonder of that relationship. Seen in this light, even the hard stuff in the Bible begins to make more sense. So when there's harsh words, you think of the Old Testament, instead of it being hate mail from an angry dictator, it's transformed into hurt words from a heartbroken, a jilted lover. The prophet Ezekiel cries out to the idol-worshipping Israelites, you adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. And that imagery carries over like in the book of Hosea, which chronicles the story of prophet Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife. Hosea's sad story mirrors the heartbreak that God experienced when the Israelites cheated and cheated and cheated on him. I would suggest that God is depicted throughout the Old and New Testament as someone who has always wanted and tried to woo humans. Simon Tugwell says, so long as we imagine it is we who have to look for God, we, must, we often lose heart. But it is the other way around. He is looking for us. And getting back to 
that's the song Wild Honey that we've been kind of using as a theme this morning. You two explores that uh, from the get-go and it says, Do I know, did I know you? Did I know you even then? Before, before the clocks kept time, before the world was made. When you enter in a love relationship like this with God, the one who romanced you before he even created the universe, the Christian life is no longer a set of rules and, and regulations that you must follow just to avoid punishment. Instead, as Bono sings, you can do just what you please, wild honey. Now, I, th I love the way he's not, uh, or he's really just echoing something that St. Augustine proclaimed over 1,500 years ago uh, with, uh, that, that uh, Augustine said, love God and then do as you please. In other words, when we're truly intimate with God, our utmost desire and preoccupation is going to be to want to please our divine lover through devotion, through loving him, through serving him, and also loving and serving other people that he also loves. In fact, the reality is sin itself changes. Instead of simply thinking of sin as breaking God's rules, sin is now seen as something that is breaking God's heart. Few believers today, however, really think of their relationship with God as a, as a love affair and partake in that intimacy that God desires. And so when we fail to experience this divine romance, we inevitably seek substitutes for filling that untamed spot in our soul. These usually come in the form of earthly relationships where we end up just, you know, giving them more priority than our relationship to God. Sex, career, sports, hobbies, expensive toys, you know, you name it in terms of what takes a place in our heart. Of course, we don't find long-term fulfillment in these as these in these stand-ins for God, we only end up growing more and more restless in our search. As St. Augustine says, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Instead of giving up, though, God patiently waits for us as we waste our time and energy on these alternatives. Going back to Wild Honey again, Bono sings, I'm still standing, I'm still standing, where you left me, are you still growing wild with everything tame around you? The popular belief today is that God is a being who wants to handcuff our passions instead of fulfill them. And as a result, people we can often run in search of freedom in every other alleyway under the sun. But as the song suggests, the great irony is that the, the replacements that people turn to, these are all tame when compared to the untamed wild reality of God's love for us. All the while we look elsewhere, God continues to court us, trying to woo us back to him. And then going back to Wild Honey again, it says, I send you flowers, cut flowers for your hall. I know your garden's full, but is there sweetness at all? Is our garden full of substitutes instead of being open for him? In today's world, though, when we think of the word Puritan, we kind of think of uh, stereotype images of legalistic, very prude, folks bent on ridding the world of fun. And regardless of how true those stereotypes might be, there was at least one Puritan, Richard Baxter, uh, who understood perfectly the wild, passionate side of God. Baxter wrote, it is a small thing in your eyes to be loved by God, to be the son, the spouse, the love, the delight of the, the king of glory. Christian believe this and think about it. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of the love which was from everlasting and will extend to everlasting, of the love which was brought 
from the Son of God's love from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory. That love which was weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spat upon, crucified, pierced, which fasted, prayed, taught, healed, wept, sweated, bled, and died. That love will eternally embrace you. I guess when I look at that description of what God's love is for us, that's why just the English term of love just seems so inadequate uh, to express what, to, what that is. But that love that described by Baxter there, that's the nature of the sacred romance that he's trying to drive at this morning. With that same love, he, he wants what was started in our lives into something uh, wild and passionate. Won't you take me, take me please, pleads God in Wild Honey. Uh, and then later in the song, you could go there if you please, Wild Honey, and if you go there, go with me, Wild Honey. Bono's words of could and if right there, I think illustrate how gloriously possible this romance is for us. In fact, there's just one condition to making this sacred love affair a reality, and that's simply opening up our heart and pursuing him too. You know, I was th thinking about it. one of our favorite, uh, one of my favorite worship songs that we often sing here at Cana is a song called Divine Romance. And the, the chorus goes, um, for you I sing and dance, rejoice in this divine romance. Lift my heart and my hands to show my love, to show my love. My hope is that when we sing this song in, in, uh, in the future, that these words divine romance will take on new meaning. That it will serve as a reminder to embrace that this wild relationship that God is calling each of us to.